I invite you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Jude as we come back now to our study. We've looked at verses 1 and 2, and this morning we'll be looking specifically at verse 3 as we continue in this this, uh, series we've entitled Contend Earnestly for the Faith, and that very title comes from this particular verse that we'll look at this morning. I invite you to stand one more time in honor of the Word of God as I read for you Jude verses 1 through 3. Follow along in your Bibles. Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are the called, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy and peace and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, while I was making every effort to write you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. So ends the reading of God's word. May we be blessed as we study it together. You may be seated. As many of you know, my wife and I recently celebrated 34 years of marriage. And in commemoration of our wedding, we determined to rent a little Airbnb up in uh, uh, Sedalia, Missouri. It's a historic little town that sits near the western end of what's now called the Katy Trail. And uh, actually, we first heard the Katy Trail. Belinda, you, you told us about the Katy Trail, and so we took you up on it. So we headed up there. It, the Katy Trail is some 240-mile path that was once used by the railroad to traverse central Missouri from St. Charles, is north of St. Louis, all the way over to Kansas City, Missouri. Our ambition is to take a bike ride on that trail sometime next year. We want to do all 240 miles of it. It would be a five-day trek across central Missouri. But we thought it might be advantageous, since we've never been on anything but asphalt or concrete, to actually go up there and ride on a gravel trail. Our original plan was to ride out about 15 or 20 miles and then ride back and make a 30 to 40 mile loop. Laura and I are accustomed to such rides, at least here in northwest Arkansas, again on those nice, smooth, quiet, cement and asphalt trails. We were warned that 40 miles on the Katy Trail is roughly the equivalent of 60 or more miles on a cement or asphalt trail. So we kept that in mind. Well, we awoke early on the morning that we were going to go out. We hydrated well and we were out on our bikes by 8:10 a.m. If we were to do 40 miles, we anticipated roughly a four-hour bike ride. And while the Katy Trail is not nearly as hilly as the paths that we have here in northwest Arkansas, it just happens to be that the most hilly parts are from Sedalia, Missouri, down to Boonesville. And so we would have to do, go downhill and then come back uphill. Our desire was to go to a little town called Pilot Grove, and then on to Boonesville, if that was okay, we recognized that there would be a little bit of uphill coming back. No worries, we set out on our trip. A beautiful August morning, it was 77 degrees, a little bit humid, but we had our excitement, we had our extra water, and we had our protein bars for cal- uh, calories. Again, we expected the temperature to peak about 94 around 2 p.m., so we thought we'd best be back by about 1. No problem. There was a heat advisory for that day, which was to begin at 1, so we had it all covered. Well, the ride began. The scenery was incredible. We had to ride through town a short way to get through to the path. But the path was well-maintained, and we enjoyed riding side-by-side, talking about how easy the trail was. It's just a lot noisier on that gravel, so we had to speak a little bit louder. The first 12 miles went by like nothing. It was just easy for us. We uh, got to Pilot Grove. uh, 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 We got to 12 miles out, which was a place called Clifton City, and it was 12 more miles to Pilot Grove, 13 miles. So if we made it there and came back, it would be a 50-mile bike ride, and we thought we can do this. 
Well, we arrived at Pilot Grove, and uh, we noticed on our map there was an abandoned town just six more miles up called Pilot Lick. I mean, you got to go to Pilot Lick. And so it's just six more miles. So we went ahead and did that, and we got there, and, and um, we, there's nothing there. It's just an abandoned town. And, I mean, there's nothing there. And we felt really good, and we'd done 30 miles, and then... I don't know, it's probably me because I'm the dumb one, but it's like if we go four more miles, that's 34 miles. We've been married 34 years, then that would be like really cool to say we rode 34 miles out. And, uh, of course, that means we've got to ride back. And Laura's like, hey, if we ride 34 miles out, we have to ride 34 miles back. So we went ahead a little bit further, um, and uh, we were headed towards Boonesville, but I, I, I was watching our, our – um, Odometer, and when we hit 34 miles, we're kind of we're out on the outskirts of Boonesville, and I thought, you know what, this this is enough. This is enough. We better start heading back. And so we were all excited. We're now going to have this 68-mile trip. That's 34 times two. So she's been married 34 years. I've been married 34 years. Made perfect sense uh, at that moment. So we began our trip home. The temperature now is creeping up. We were drinking more water, and we started to feel the length of the ride because, well, we're going up. We got back to Pilot Grove. It was a 10-mile stent from where we had been, and my wife was now beginning to suffer from the uh, effects of heat exhaustion. And so we got to Pilot Grove, and they had water, and I just started dumping water on her head and on her neck. And... And uh, she started feeling better so much so that she uh, went right over to the spigot and just sat under there for about 30 minutes and let water run all over her. So now she's feeling better. I tried to cool myself off a bit, and uh, we thought, okay, now we have about 12 miles to Clifton City and 12 miles home. I mean, we can do this. So we made out, and we headed to Clifton City. Uh, the bike ride that had begun at so relatively easy. I, we were talking. We were looking at wildlife. We were just, we weren't thinking about biking at all. We hit about the, well, I hit about the 44-mile mark, and all of a sudden, I wasn't looking at the scenery anymore. I was thinking, I'm starting to hurt. I've been on this seat for four and a half hours. Uh, my legs are starting to cramp. My toes are starting to cramp. So we kept going, and we made it to, uh, to Clifton City, and the temperature was now uh, hitting about 90. And, and uh, so we got to Clifton City because, we well, we saw that there had been a bathroom there, so surely there was water. Well, there was a bathroom, but there was no water. And so we're now trying to manage our water, and while we were sitting there, I started getting the chills and suffering from heat exhaustion. We have only 12 miles left. We should be able to do this. Uh, and so we got on the road, we hit the 50-mile mark, and I thought, this is where we should have been done. But we still had 18 miles, of course, to go. So we, uh, we were trying to, to make it back, and now neither one of us are talking to one another. I'm kind of just looking down, watching my feet, just going, okay, this is one mile at a time, just one mile at a time. I just got to do this. We were about eight miles out, and a couple of times we had to stop because I got a cramp or she got a cramp or whatever, and uh, I was afraid. I'd keep looking in my rearview mirror because I thought, if she passes out, I don't want to go a mile before I see that. <laughs> and she's thinking, uh, she tells me later, if he passes out, I don't want to run over him. Uh, those kinds of things are going on. And I was a little bit in front of her at one point. We're about eight miles out. We're both just now. This should have been over. We should have been done. We hit about 60 miles. We're eight miles out. And I hear Laura in the background. And what I heard is, I got a flat. And I thought, we're dead. I can't do anything. I can barely function. Then I'm even moving my legs. And so I stop, and I look back, and I said, you got a flat? She said, no. I said, I had to stop. I said, okay, because I just didn't know what we were going to do. So anyway, we continue on uh, this journey. It's one mile at a time. We are now agonizing. Toes are cramping. We're, we're, we're rationing our water. 
uh, the last couple of miles is out on this white gravel in the middle of the sun. So now there's no shade and we are just, it's taking everything we got. We literally thought this, we're never going to make it. We are going to die on this path. <laughs> we're just going to lay out here and be corpses. We didn't know that we would make it. So we press on, we push harder and harder, and eventually we made it to the Katy Train Depot where there was water. And we got there, and we're drenching ourselves in water. I'm, I, I don't know if I'm breathing at all. This one guy is trying to pump up his tire there, and he says, hey, can you help me? And I said, no. <laughs> and he's, he looked at me he's like, what? I said, I just did 68 miles. He said, oh, I'll leave you alone. I mean... He couldn't get something to work, and I wasn't going to figure it out. So we lay there for about 30 minutes, and we got the chill thing going on. We have one more mile through the town to get to our place. We get there. We enter. It's 69 degrees in our little apartment. It's dark. We collapse on the floor, and we lay there for about 30 minutes, just utterly exhausted. We get showered and take care of all of that, and for a couple of hours, we're sitting on the couch with blankets on because we're just shivering because of the effects of the, of the heat exhaustion. After a couple of hours, we, we did okay. Uh, we went to bed. We actually woke up the next day feeling great, like we could do this again. Um, not sure what's wrong with that, uh, what's wrong with us for that. Now, then we loaded up our stuff, and we came back. And you're like, why are you telling this about your anniversary trip? Most of you know I rarely take time to share such things with you, especially what my wife and I have done. So why today? Well, as we were on those final miles of that ride, even though I was somewhat delusional, my wife actually was hallucinating that there were girls on horses watching us, but you'll have to ask her about that. But all I was doing is we're riding these last miles, and I was aching. I was hurting, and I didn't know if we would make it back. I figured one of us was going down. I told Laura, according to the thing here, you dial star 55 to get emergency help. So I, I told her that. When I told her that, she thought, my husband's going to die, and what am I going to do? But why do I share all of that? Because those last eight miles were agonizing. It was all that we could do to keep moving. We knew we had to keep moving. There really wasn't an option. I thought I'd rather be riding my bike than trying to walk the rest of this with my bike. So we just had to keep moving. And all I could think about, all God was putting in my head was Jude 3 and this phrase that you would contend earnestly for the faith. Why would that phrase come to my mind? Because in the original Greek, this phrase, contend earnestly, comes from a word, epagonizomai, which in the Greek means epi-agonize. It is to agonize, to struggle, to contend, to fight with everything you have, to fight to the death. And then it has a preposition in front of it, epi, which means go above and beyond, over the top. It is you're going to struggle and struggle and fight and contend to get to the end of this battle that we call the Christian faith. Well, that's the little picture that God gave me riding my bike those last eight miles. I didn't know if I was going to make it. And I think about the Christian life when you start the Christian life, like, yay, I know Jesus. I love Jesus. This is great. You don't know anything, but you just know Jesus is great. And then you start working through the Christian life. The scenery's great. You love everything that's going on. But I'm telling you that if you're living for Jesus Christ, while it is sweeter every day, if you're living for him, it gets difficult to continue to live, it get, get continue, it, to continue to push yourself. The, the struggle continues while certain aspects of following Jesus will always be routine. We just kind of say, just keep pedaling, right? The struggle and the fight will increase. It will grow more intense. It will be more wearisome. And it will require a resolve to get to the end. It will require grit, which we had lots of. While there is joy in the journey, it does not get easier the longer one walks with Christ. Rather, the more temporary and superfluous things of this world begin to lose their focus, and all you do is fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter 
of faith. You just keep pushing on. Now, I believe that this is in part what the Apostle Paul actually had in mind when he wrote in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 6 through uh, 7. There it is. Paul says, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering. He spent. That's the term I used. I said, Laura, I'm spent. He says, I'm already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. He's got the same kind of mentality that Jude is telling us in Jude 3. Paul was spent, used up. He had fought to the end. He had kept the faith. This is what Jude is now calling believers to in our text. This is what the Christian life is to be. Now, I don't mean that it's always going to be with cramping and such like that, but when you are living for Christ, there should be an earnest contending, a struggle for the faith. I've entitled the message, Engaging the Battle, as Jude is calling believers to push themselves, to agonize in their living out and their proclaiming of their faith in Jesus Christ. There's two key points that I have for us this morning. One will be a personal endearment, and the second one will be a pastoral exhortation. So let's turn our attention to the text and just see what this, this extreme exhortation of, of Jude. Can you imagine saying to a bunch of Christians, when you leave this, let's say, let me put it this way. I'll be Jude for just a moment. You be the, the listeners. When you leave this place, I want you to fight so hard for your faith that I want it to hurt. I want you to realize that there's nothing easy about really working and serving the Lord. That it's going to take everything you got. The world will throw every distraction at you. You will be looking for ways out, looking for excuses by which you can say, I don't have to obey what God has commanded. And Jude says, may it never be. You will fight. You will fight hard and you will fight to the end and to the death if necessary. This is an extreme exhortation to live for Jesus Christ. Now, after Jude's greeting in verses 1 and 2, he makes clear what he had initially intended to communicate with his readers. This was to be a letter of both encouragement and exhortation concerning the benefits of a common salvation. We'll speak of that in a moment. But as we see, the Holy Spirit changed his topic. The Holy Spirit pushed Jude into a different realm altogether. And now he's saying, rather than just talking to you about the blessings of salvation, I want to talk to you about the battle that you better be engaged in because we folks are now plunged into the middle of enemy territory and we've got to wait it out until the Lord Jesus returns. I'd like to point out that Jude himself was not looking for trouble, and he's not asking for us to look for trouble. Rather, I would submit to you that Jude said, trouble finds the believer. When you live for Jesus, trouble finds you. So prompted by the Holy Spirit, Jude was unable to ignore the problem that was now confronting the, the church that, that Jude is addressing. What was the problem? The problem is this. The apostates, those who had fallen away from the faith, those who had rejected the faith they once proclaimed, uh, professed to believe, were now actively resisting and seeking to undermine the faith. There were those supposedly in the church telling things about Jesus and about the scriptures that were simply not so. And Jude says, you better wake up and fight against such apostates, because they're here. Remember that such apostates start in the church, and many of them continue in the church, and nothing has changed, folks. I could rattle off a list of names, and they should not be names of books that you have in your house, but contemporary evangelicalism has become so inclusive and so embracing of just about anything that has the stamp of Jesus put on it that we've not been discerning. And by the way, parents, grandparents, teach your children the stories of the Bible. We have noticed 
that our children are not as familiar with the stories of the Bible. We can only do so much in a second hour Bible school for our kids. We need you to be, you know, some of our kids can know more about superheroes than they know about Samson. They can know more about, about certain music or sports figures than they know about Peter and, and Paul and John. May it never be. May we be busy telling our children about the faith. Now, all of this serves to remind us of an important precept. And our pre- this precept is reminding us that we are not to go looking for trouble. Indeed, our prayer... Our prayer for government, our prayer for our government ought to be that as we pray for those in authority, uh, 1 Timothy 2.2 says that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. Our goal is to be just living for God and being kind of left alone on that level. However, according to the word of God and even the promises of Jesus in John 16.33, conflict will come. And it will come looking for you. There will be matters that arise in our culture that believers simply cannot ignore, that must be dealt with, that we must talk about in the context of the church, that we must weed out from the congregation so that it is not infecting the church, like removing the leaven that will, of course, corrupt the whole dough. Before us, then, as a reminder that as believers, we've been entrusted with the most important, the most precious of commodities and that commodity is our faith in jesus christ and that faith must be defended at all costs we must be engaging in the battle this then is at the heart of jude's extreme exhortation here let us note how it begins and look at our first point one that i've entitled a personal endearment personal endearment Look at the language of the beginning part of verse 3. Beloved, while I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation. What can be more delightful than to hear that somebody loves you? What can be more wondrous that the one who loves you is doing everything he or she can to speak of that which is delightful? Jude begins with reminding his readers again of their position in Christ, does he not? Recall that he had just spoken in verse 1 about believers being what? The called, and then secondly, beloved in God the Father. That's the position. He says, I want to tell you, verse 1, about who you are in Christ, the beloved of God. And then the very first chance he gets to talk to the believers directly, he says what? Beloved. He uses the very title, the very words that God would use of us. Now Jude opens up and says, beloved, this reminder that not only uh, are we the recipients of God's benevolence and, and goodness and salvation as realized by faith in Jesus Christ. But now this is also an expression of this pastoral saint by the name of Jude towards those whom God has so blessed. In other words, whomever God has counted as beloved, the believers should count them as beloved. You should be looking to one another and saying, that one who professes faith in Jesus Christ is so loved of God. What a delight. We're going to have some baptisms next Sunday. These will be the beloved of God. And you should say, God so loves them. I so love them. And here is Jude opening up with this. Here's his heart for the saints of God. Whomever God loves, Jude will love. Beloved, this, is all, this also reminds us that we, as a church, if we are to be successful in earnestly contending for the faith, if we are going to be agonizing for the truth that God has given us, it begins by rightly recognizing and being engaged with other saints. We weren't intended to travel this journey alone. First of all, Jesus said, if I go, I send the Holy Spirit who will not only be with you, he will be in you. And then he gives you the company of the saints. 
We are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. We have the beloved of God by our sides. When I stop to think that each one of you who have professed faith in Jesus and have expressed faith in Jesus are the loved ones of God, that you individually share the same title that God the Father has expressed towards his own son. Because remember, when Jesus was baptized and when Jesus was at the Mount of Transfiguration, what words did God the Father utter? He said, this is my beloved son. And now you and I share that title, how that ought to melt our hearts, how it ought to cause us to to think, how should I be treating this person, one who is so loved of God? Do I have my faults? Yes, I dropped my water. Do we have our faults? Do we have our ability to, to uh, you know, provoke one another not on to love and good and deeds, but to other things? Yes, we do. But that doesn't change this title that we are beloved of God. Such is to affect the way we think about one another. It is to affect the way we interact with one another. It is to, to affect the way that I serve or we serve one another. When we look at another saint, we are looking at one of the most loved ones of God. Let us pray that we would rightly look upon one another. It was because of this love that Jude then expresses three things towards the saints. Let us note them. First, we see Jude's concern. Again, verse 3 begins with an expression of concern for the church. These are the God's beloved with whom Jude is ready and willing to fight alongside of, with whom he's ready to exhort to, to do battle, and he will do battle for them. Here is Jude expressing his concern for the church by stating that he himself is willing to contend for the faith with them. While we keep alluding to the exhortation to earnestly contend for the faith, keep in mind that if we are going to succeed in this battle for the truth, we must share this same concern for the church. If you love the church, you will stand for and with the church. If you love the church, you will fight for her. You will do battle for her. You will stand with your brothers and sisters for the faith. Let me ask you a practical question. How often do you actually concern yourself with the spiritual well-being of the individuals in this church? Where you sit down and you think through, I, uh, here's what I know is going on in so-and-so's life. Do you regularly pray for them? Do you have a concern for such individuals? And I mean not just the pastor and not just the leadership, but for individuals within this body. You see, Jude places the emphasis here not upon any program, not upon any event, but upon the beloved. It should not be so much about how am I going to pull off this particular ministry but how am I going to minister to those with whom I get to do this ministry? Who can I get involved? How should I pray for such people? This is Jude's concern. And it leads to a second expression, Jude's commitment. How is this concern expressed? Notice how he says it. He says, beloved, while I was making every effort to write to you, the verb there, making every effort, has to do with being diligent. It has the idea of applying maximum effort. So we really have somewhat of a word play or this kind of tension in our verse. I was being maximally, uh, uh, applying maximum effort in writing you. I had every intention of composing for you that which I believed would be of greatest encouragement. I was going to every end to do that, applying maximum effort. He was going to work with great haste. He had great eagerness to accomplish this task. Jude was striving to promote before the saints the wonders and the blessings of salvation. 
Remember I said, if you can't remember anything else for which to give thanks to God, start rehearsing the blessings of salvation. And here's Jude thinking, these people need to know that they were lost in their sins, dead in their trespasses and sins. They had no means by which to make themselves right with God. But God, being rich in mercy and loving them so, made them alive together with Christ. He was going to just work out the blessings of salvation, and he was going to apply every effort to that end. He was going to be consumed with this passion. He wanted to help God's people and promote God's work. In a phrase, we would put it this way, serving Jesus was Jude's priority, and he knew there was nothing greater than the possession of eternal life. Jesus said, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the one true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Beloved, so often the problems the church suffers from today is a lack of commitment. And I know some of you, you'll, you'll say, well, pastor, we're here, right? Woohoo! You're not talking to us. You're talking to the folks that didn't make it. Yes, yes, you are here. And I know that many of you are indeed committed. But what if serving the Lord and attending church was not convenient? What if you had to ride your bike 68 miles uphill? Would you still be so committed? What if by being asked to serve, such service actually made you feel uncomfortable? Would you still be committed? The church needs to be made up of people who are committed, who will say, you know, I will apply maximum effort. I will apply all diligence in serving God by serving his people. And such is not to be the occasional when convenient occurrence, but it is to be an everyday priority. Where is the Lord and the well-being of his people on your list of priorities? I assure you, as found in the word of God, that the primary purpose of Christ after glorifying God was the well-being of his people. Think about that. In John 17, the high priestly prayer, if you might write that down and read that later, John 17, the high priestly prayer, Jesus begins, I have glorified you by accomplishing the work that you've given me to do. And then he proceeds to write out that his priority was for the well-being of the people of God. If you just want to know what the Christian life is about, if you want to know how you parents are to live out your faith in front of your children, how spouses are to live out their faith before one another, prioritize this. Glorify God in everything you do and then do all things for the well-being of your family, your friends, for your neighbors, for those around you. Kind of sounds like love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then what? Love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself. That was Jesus' priority. I believe that's what we're getting at here in our text. The well-being of God's people was not just Jesus' priority, but it was Jude's priority. And if it was Jesus' priority, how much more should it be yours? I know we can never outdo Jesus, but if you're a Christian, what are you? The word Christian means little Christ. And so the priorities of Christ need to be your priorities. Again, I urge you to read John 17, and you will leave with this note, that Jesus' priorities were to glorify God and to do everything he could for the well-being of God's people. Well, that's his commitment. Let's look at Jude's conviction. The first half of verse 3 closes with an expression of Jude's conviction. What was it that he was so concerned about? What was it that Jude was so committed to? We read in our text, he was writing to them about our common salvation. Now, do not let the word common throw you as if to suggest that this is ordinary, that it's routine, 
that we should just be nonchalant about salvation. I will give this exhortation, and I'm just as guilty of it as, as I would say our church is, and I'm going to speak in generalities. We are not as enamored with our salvation as we ought to be. And we do not speak of our salvation to one another as we ought to. And so we're not talking about something nonchalant, something just, well, it's just what everybody does. The word common is koinos in the Greek, and it speaks to that which is simply shared by a group. It's something shared by a group. Sometimes we speak of the New Testament. It has, was written primarily in what we call koine Greek, common Greek. It was the language that was shared by all people. It's not that it was just ordinary. It's just that it was shared by the group. We use the word koinonia which to speak of, it's translated sometimes fellowship in our Bibles. And it speaks of partnership, of what we hold in common. It's what we all hold to as dear. It is the, the basis of our partnership. And what is it that we hold to so dear? What is it that unites us together today? It is Jesus Christ. And I tell you, what is ordinary about him? What is it that we would just say, oh, it's not a big deal. We're just a bunch of Christians just, you know, hobnobbing together. No, we are worshiping the living God. We are speaking to one another of the living God. And Jude is now speaking of the wonderfully shared blessing of every believer in Christ. They are the saved. They are the recipients of the salvation of God. Let me point out to you something that we might easily skip, that Jude himself identifies himself in this way. It is our common salvation. It's not your common salvation. It's our common salvation. It is an immediate reminder that Jude himself is a believer, that Jude himself had come to know the Lord Jesus Christ, that Jude had received the truth of the gospel and the blessings of salvation. This means that Jude greatly desired then one thing for others. And what was it? That they would receive and know and delight in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. One of the problems in the church today is that we really have forgotten why, why we are here. We really have. Why is it that the Lord has left believers on the earth? Why don't we just get raptured right up the moment that we believe? Of course, then there'd be no one to tell others about Christ, right? <clears throat> Beloved, we are not here to make names for ourselves. We are not here to get rich. We're not even here to just get by. Did you know that? I'm just trying to get by. That's not, what, that's not why you're here. Believers are left on the earth to shine the light, to shine the truth, to proclaim the faith of Jesus Christ in the dark world. We get so used to the terminology that we don't think of the wonder of the terminology. Jesus gave us the commission. Go, therefore, and make followers, learners of Jesus Christ. There's the commission, to make disciples of Jesus Christ. Let me remind you of something that is a little disturbing when you think about this. The great commission is what? Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations, uh, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe, to do all that Christ had commanded. That means that anything short of that task is disobedience, and it's sinful. So when we are not spending adequate time training ourselves in the things of the Lord, when we are not taking the time in our families to communicate the truths of the things of the Lord to one another, when we're not educating our children as we ought in the things of the, of the Lord, but we turn them over to the things of the world, I'm telling you, that's disobedience. I'm not saying there are not times to enjoy those things, but you better make sure that you are making learners of Jesus Christ. We are to be teaching unbelievers who Jesus is and what he has commanded so that they may be what? Saved by the work of the Holy Spirit and by the grace of God. 
It is to be our desire that salvation, the salvation we have experienced by believing on the Lord Jesus Christ, becomes the common, becomes the shared of experience of those with whom we have an influence on. Parents, who do you have the greatest influence on? Your children. Your goal is to see your children share this salvation that you say you hold so dear. But are you speaking? Do you, are you diligent to, to write about it and to talk about it to them? That's what Jude is getting after. And so, husbands and wives, make it your prime objective to see one another become better followers of Jesus. That's your task. That's why you got married. You know, I got married for other reasons. Well, there are other reasons. But a Christian marriage is to be built on what? Pushing one another to be better followers of Jesus Christ. Parents, you do the same with your children. Children, push your parents. You can push your parents to be better followers of Jesus. See other family, friends, and co-workers through that same lens. We are to help people know and follow Jesus better to share this common salvation. This is Jude's conviction that leads to his commitment, which was ultimately his concern for the believers. And so we see Jude's personal endearment, his love and affection for these believers. And it brings us to our second point, a pastoral expectation or exhortation. A pastoral exhortation. In verse 3, we find Jude writing, I felt the necessity to write to you, appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. Again, Jude had in mind uh, regarding, uh, had in mind regarding encouraging uh, the church concerning their shared salvation, but now something else was pressing. Something else stirred his, his heart I believe the Holy Spirit got a hold of him and said, now, here is the exhortation you are to give. And I'd have you note three things from the end of verse three. First is the intervention, the intervention. <clears throat> While Jude had fully given himself to the purpose of writing to them about salvation, there was something that came to his mind that was more needful, he says, more necessary for the church. By the way, can I remind you that sometimes you may, how many of you ever rehearse what you're going to say to somebody? You know, you're like, I got to talk. I'm, I'm going to, I'm having lunch with Justin sometime, and I'm gonna, I want to say three things. And you get there, and, and, and I'm just using Justin as an example. This has, get there, and, and Justin starts talking about something completely different. He's got something else going on in his life. And if I'm headstrong, I'm going to go, oh, I'm going to talk to him about these three things. I have nothing to do with what he's going on. What, is he going to hear me? No, I need to listen to what he's saying and allow the Holy Spirit to move me. What's necessary for Justin in this particular moment? There's this, I need to intervene according to the moment. Jude says that he felt the necessity. That is something, or I would say more accurately, someone, the Holy Spirit stirred his heart to a different topic. The word necessity speaks of that which is imposed by either circumstance or a sense of duty. The circumstances have changed. You can come home from work and think, I want to do this, but then the circumstances change and you need to do that. And you have to roll with the punches, as it were. And so here's this moving, that which is the necessity is being imposed upon you by a, a circumstance of change or a sense of duty. Even Jude was ready to rehearse with them the blessings of salvation, as I say we ought always be able to do, but the present circumstance the church found itself in required a different message. There was, to be, there was a clear and present danger that Jude says, I must address with you. And when a danger is made known, there generally is a call for what? To be vigilant, to watch out, to be ready for what is coming. I mean, you're out there. Uh, we're going to be out there on Prairie Creek, and, and there's a couple of guys throwing a, a ball, and somebody yells, heads up. What do you do? You know, it's really funny. Heads up, everybody goes that. Because why would you put your head up and get hit with the ball anyway? But any, uh, the, the, there's a warning that's given, and everybody's supposed to pay attention to that. And here is what Jude is doing. There's, there's this call to be watchful and ready. Beloved, there's a sad tendency among Christians to ignore, so ignore what's going on around us, burying our proverbial heads in the sand, 
hoping that the cultural and societal attacks will just go away and that they'll just leave us alone. Again, while believers are not to go looking for trouble, the reality is that living for Jesus will invite trouble. And the darker and the more sinful the culture, we can be assured of this, more trouble will come our way if we're rightly living for Christ. There will be occasions, some amongst your family, some in a, a work or, uh, or, or public setting in which you cannot remain silent. Some aspect of God has been undermined and you must speak the truth. There will be times when you must intervene in a situation. And within the context of Jude, the call is not sit idly by and <clears throat> by when we see depraved values and, and anti-truth sentiments of the world begin to invade the truth. Just sit there. Let it happen. Don't talk about it amongst one another. Don't warn your children. Just let it come on in. Or you can say, we must proclaim the truth. We must stand for the faith. We must contend. Beloved, for the believer seeking to live for Jesus, there will be times, there must be times when you feel the necessity. You are compelled to communicate a needed exhortation, a call, a reminder to others. Here is the truth. And all of this reminds us that we must not only be filled with the word of God. So are you reading your Bibles? But we must be filled with the Holy Spirit. We must be yielded to him if we're going to have, have one uh, course of action, one particular truth we desire to share. We must not find ourselves so narrow-minded that we cannot see that the situation calls for a different tact, <clears throat> a different aspect of truth. I may truly desire to share with a Mormon friend the faultiness of his theology concerning the relationship of Christ and Satan to remind them that uh, remind him that they that Christ and Satan are not brothers as are is taught by the Mormon church i may rehearse what i intend to say over and over but then when i get to speak to him i come to learn that his mother has just been diagnosed with terminal cancer is it the best time to tell him about his bad theology concerning satan and christ it would not be helpful to share what I intended. I must look to the Holy Spirit and I must allow the Spirit to draw from my daily intake of the Word of God to bring to Him a different message. If I could put this another way, we must not be single-issue Christians. Yes, we preach Christ and Christ alone, but Christ and His Word addresses every manner of circumstance we deal with in life and it's incumbent upon every believer to be ready to address whatever comes up in a biblical fashion. Just a couple of days ago, I was asked to speak to a young man whom I've never met and do not know at all to help him think biblically regarding some decisions he needed, needed to make regarding college. Before I made the call, I prayed and asked the Lord to guide my words. I did not know where the conversation would take me. I had enough of a heads up to know the basic issues, but as I talked with the young man, I adapted the message to share with him not what I thought was best for him, but rather to share with him the precepts and principles by which he himself could now make a godly decision for the glory of God. And so at times I found myself thinking in my head, I should just tell him he needs to do a, B, and C, or this or that. But then I felt the necessity to speak to him not of my opinion, but the truths of God's word that would enable him to know the will of God. This is the intervention. But next comes the inspiration. Again, we must stress that for Jude, this was a matter that could not be ignored. It was clear that believers needed to be challenged. They needed to be exhorted. There were not multiple answers now to their question of what to do given their circumstance of being surrounded by people who are teaching untruths and being trying to draw others away from the faith. And what is this exhortation? What is the only answer when confronted with half-truths? or half lies, we read it in the command in verse 3, that you, you all, youans, 
you in the church, every single one of you who says you know Jesus Christ as Savior, that you contend earnestly for the faith. You know what this is? This is a battle cry. Jude is the general, as it were. And he says, it's time to go to battle. It is time for you to make a decision. Will you contend earnestly for the faith? It is a war in which you must be engaged. What is the war? It is a truth war. And believers must be known for their standing for what is true and what is right according to the word of God. I submit to you that the language of Jude is intense. Again, notice the exhortation, the verb contend earnestly. Epe agonizome. The root of this Greek word gives us our English word agony. And as said before with the preposition epi, this agony is intensified. In the days of Jude, the word was used to describe the agonizing pain that was felt by a long-distance marathon runner, that he, what he would experience as he pushes himself towards the final miles of his race. I feel like I felt that after 68 miles on my bike. It was also a military term describing, listen to this, the hand-to-hand combat as Roman sol- uh, that Roman soldiers experience while engaging their enemies with their swords. Do you know if you had a sword, do you know how many times I think I could swing a sword before I'd be out of breath? Like maybe four or five times. You see in the movies, they're like having these 20, 30-minute long sword fights. Like, it, no. But you know how agonizing it would be to keep throwing that sword, to keep thrusting that sword. This is the word that's used here. We could translate the word to fight with fervent intensity and dogged determination. It is, I will not give up. I will not give in. This is the battle you and I are intended to be engaged in, and we will say we will do everything necessary to win. But here's the caveat. We've already won. We've already won with Christ. Even as Laura and I fought with every fiber of our being to make it back into town, agonizing and hurting, wishing it would be over. Uh, It's like Jude saying, hey, if this is your Christian life, you just keep pushing. You go all the way. You will make it to the Katy Station, which is a picture of heaven. Really? (laughs) We thought so. What does this mean for us? It means that doctrinal error must always be taken seriously and refuted in the church. It means we must be careful to distinguish, though, between disagreement or secondary doctrinal issues with that which is actually false teaching or heresy. Take, for example, that we have varying doctrinal interpretations of eschatology, how things are going to end. There are those of us who hold to premillennialism. Some of us, even in premillennialism, some hold to post-tribulationalism, that believers are going to go through the great tribulation uh, before the rapture of the church. Others of us believe that it's pre-tribulationary rapture, that that Jesus will take us up before the tribulation. Then there's all-millennialism, and there's post-millennialism. There's been long a debate uh, that exists between the advocates of these positions, and each will claim to be true to the word of God. Therefore, none of us should claim that the other positions are heretical and those who follow such teachings are therefore apostates or false teachers. Beloved, doctrinal agreements do not always indicate the presence of false teachers. There is a dramatic difference between holding to certain eschatological views that are not clearly delineated in part in the scripture and holding to such um, clearly expressed truths like the deity of Christ or the nature of the atonement or the second or that Jesus is coming again or the virgin birth to deny those kinds of doctrines is to therefore put yourself outside of what we call orthodoxy but secondary doctrinal issues are to be discussed they can be debated with fervency believers must not confuse the content of the faith with those secondary doctrinal issues and yet allow Uh, that still allow a person to be uh, orthodox. For Jude, these believers, though, are called to contend earnestly for the faith. 
and they're to do so in love. I, I say to you, there's to be an eye towards reclaiming false teachers from their error. When we teach the truth to somebody who's teaching a falsity, it shouldn't be, I'm just going to blast you away with what the truth is. It should be, God, have mercy on them and let them see the truth so that they might be saved, that they might be redeemed. This was Jude's burden. This is the Holy Spirit's exhortation, and therefore, it is to be our burden as well. But it leads to our final consideration, what we call the implications. Notice that this exhortation to go to war has an object, it has a goal. It is to contend earnestly for what? The faith. I alluded to this a moment ago, but what does Jude mean by the faith? Beloved, he's not primarily speaking of having saving faith. That's included, but that's not what's being spoken of primarily. When Jude speaks of the faith, he's referring to the body of basic Christian doctrine and Christian truth. It's what we hold, what we believe. This is the body of truth to which believers are to earnestly contend. You fight for this. Notice that it is the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. This is the substance. What we teach today has an ancient root. It has come to us from apostolic authority, a body of truth that is final and complete. Notice the adverb translated as once for all delivered, meaning that it is complete and it is final. There is nothing to be added. There is nothing to be taken away. As believers, we are to take the fundamental doctrines, the faith, and not only live them out, but now Jude says we are to defend and proclaim them. While we can appreciate pastors and Bible teachers, we must always compare what they are teaching to the word of God. We must be careful with our modern proclamations of doctrine from the latest and greatest pastor de jour that we just accept it because, well, he's the latest and greatest pastor, so he must be right. The call here is not to be enamored with their thoughts, but rather to study and reflect how what they say compares to what? The faith that has been completed and is finalized and has been handed to you on a silver platter. It is a call to be Berean-like. We are to compare what these People say to the faith that has come down to us from the apostles, this faith is not open for debate. What God's word says and, and is proclaimed by God's men are true and final. Jude is reminding believers that sound doctrine is never an open question. Let me also point out that the faith has aspects. First, in verse 3, is the doctrinal side, as we've noted, but next week, beginning in verse 4, the faith has a practical side. For the false teachers have distorted the faith, and, and that has a practical side. They, they have distorted the faith, turning the grace of God into a license for immorality. So the question is going to become, how are you living your life? A very practical question. Are you living your life according to the faith, or are you living your life in some manner according to what the apostates have now said you can do by the grace of God. So verses 3 and 4 have both doctrine and practice. As we seek to wrap things up, let me address a question that sometimes comes up when we speak about the faith. We have in our pro, uh, possession all sorts of creeds and statements of faith, right? Our church has a statement of faith. I've heard so many people, why do you have to have a statement of faith? Why are there creeds? I have no other creed but Christ. Well, that is a creed. And anything you say about Christ becomes what? A creed. And that's all creeds or statements are. Some people frown upon such things saying, well, Jesus never had a creed and Paul never had a creed or such statements. Well, we might say in a formal sense they did not have such creeds, but practically speaking, I assure you they did. Let me give you an example. Look with me at Matthew 16, verses 13 through 17. <clears throat> Let's see if we have a creed here. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, who do the people say the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, and others Elijah, and still others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. Jesus said to them, 
but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, here's the creed, folks. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father who is in heaven. This is what we call Peter's confession. It is a confession of what? Faith. It is indeed a confession of the very identity of Christ, and it is at the very core of the essential doctrines of Christianity. If you do not believe Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God, you are damned to hell. And I know it's feeling warm in here like that. <clears throat> Let me give you another. The Apostle Paul, did he have a creed? 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 through 4, we read what? Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preach to you, which you also received and which you also stand, by which you are saved if you hold fast to the, uh, hold fast the word, the confession, which I preach to you, unless you have believed in vain. Well, what is this confession? For I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received. Here it is, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. What is that? That's a creed. That's a statement of faith. Here is Paul commenting on what has been delivered, what has been handed down to him, given to him. Here is the faith, that which he regarded and described as basic gospel content. And let me offer you one more. It's found in 1 Timothy 3.16. I find this one fascinating. And Paul gives this message to Timothy. He calls it the mystery of godliness. And what follows is believed by commentators not to be the original words of Paul, but a Christian hymn, a Christian confession that Paul is drawing on. This is what was circulating amongst the congregations of believers. And what does he say there? By common, there's that word, by common, he uses the word confession. Great is the mystery of godliness. What is this message? He who was revealed in the flesh was vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Beloved, here are this is the very heart of the Christian faith. And these are unquestionably the contents of the faith of which Jude is speaking. Let me give you a quick list of those things that you might consider as doctrinal non-negotiables. And we could add some more, but just uh, just want to give these to you. The inerrancy of Scripture. If you do not believe in the inerrancy of Scripture, you are going to have a hard time with the faith. The triunity or the trinity, a literal Adam and Eve, the sinful nature of humanity, the, the depravity of man, the, the deity of Christ, the virgin birth of Christ, the sinless life of Christ, the substitutionary atonement of Christ, a literal body resurrection, bodily resurrection, a literal second coming, and eternal, literal heaven and hell. Beloved, we may add some things to that list, but I tell you this, a denial of any one of those things puts you outside the faith which was, once, which was once for all handed down to the saints. There is no room for debate. There's no room for compromise on such truths. For Jude, the urgent need at hand for the church had one option. This is the option. You either contend earnestly for the faith or you're not in the faith. There is a sense of urgency. The time is now to stand and give everything you have for the truth. While there is not a promise of the battle being easy, the battle for believers will be one they win. We live in a time when many have abandoned the faith. Many are choosing the way of the world rather than the ways of Christ. Many have determined that it's no longer worth the effort. What are they saying? I will not agonize to stand for the truth. And therefore, they've compromised with the world. Still others have bought into the lie that we need to bring the world into the church so that we might reach the world. Beloved, the only thing that we have that will never change is God and his word. That means that's all we have that's worth fighting for. The truths that we have and study are the same truths that the saints have received before us. Every believer experiences salvation through the same Jesus. The faith of the former generations here held on to that were relevant for them are ju is just as relevant for us. This faith is found the foundation of Christianity, and believers must remain true 
to the truth of God. What does this mean for us? It means that the truth of God is really all that matters. It means that without faith in Christ, without trusting that he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, and specifically your sin, then all else that you believe is in vain. It is empty. It is eternally unsatisfying. It is damning to your soul. There are foundational truths that we simply cannot ignore, and we must proclaim, and we must defend. The truth of God has never changed, and I praise the Lord for that. It will never change. If we abandon the truth of God for the lies of the world, we have nothing left but the terrifying prospect of a Christless eternity. Therefore, we are those who stand on the promises of God, on the word of God. We have no other option. Let us pray that we realize God's presence and power then because that is the only way we can engage in this battle. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you so much for the saints that have gone before us. We thank, we thank you for the faithful testimony, the witness of the apostles who have given us the truth that has now been given to the saints once for all. It is ours. And so, Father, may we delight in it May we uh, learn it, and then may we proclaim it and defend it. Father God, we pray that you will continue to do your work in making us be the people of God you desire us to be as we seek to hold forth the word of life to a world that needs to see that there is life in Christ, in Christ alone, in whose name we ask these things. Amen.